Okay, it's now eight o'clock. Is the recording happening? Good, okay. So welcome everybody to the first day uh, of the range of the retreat here in October. They call it the first day because you know, last night people getting settled in, getting to know the place and resting, I hope. And having rested, uh, when you f give the first talks on meditation, I know that many of you have meditated a long time before, but some of you have just come in here and so maybe quite fresh to the idea of meditation. So usually the first couple of talks you try and keep it quite general, simple, but very profound, <laughs> as I was mentioning last night. And what I thought about talking about this morning was an old um, similes, which is so important with meditation, with Buddhism in general, called letting go. Many people sometimes ask me that, and they have been people who have been Buddhists for so many years. And uh, even monastics. And you ask them, and they ask me, well, yeah, I've heard this so many times, but how actually do you let go? What actually is it? And where is it in Buddhist practice, the meditation practice? I thought you're supposed to like hold on to the object of meditation and stick it out no matter how it feels. Is that really what letting go is? And of course, that's not true. Uh, again, letting go or its uh, partner, letting be, are the most important parts of Buddhism, I would say. But first of all, what is the difference between letting go and letting be? It seems to be like opposites. But what you let go of is what we call like the craving, the wanting, the desires. Any wanting, even wonderful things to want. When you're meditating, you're sitting down, see if you can let go of all desires, all craving, which will also mean letting go of the future and the past. Because that's where the craving and its partner, ill will, they live in the past and the future. Right in this present moment, it's already here. So you can't want the present moment or not want it. I can not want it, but not wanting it is thinking of some place in the future you could be. So this is actually where letting go of wanting and its opposite, ill will, takes you... Uh, is a form of letting go which allows you to remain in the present moment. So the letting go is letting go of the movement of the mind which wants to get somewhere else, get rid of stuff. And letting be is what's left. Whatever's left right here, you let it be. But the letting be can get much more powerful than just some sort of negative not doing anything because I often notice that there was a great uh, connection between letting be and loving-kindness. And where that connection was best expressed 
is in the way that I have uh, described for myself mostly, but shared it with others, what loving kindness truly is. It can't be just ordinary loving kindness. It has to be what we call unconditional loving kindness. And the unconditional part of it adds that uh, beauty, that sparkle to loving kindness where you say, the door of my heart is open to you, no matter what, no matter who you are. And that type of loving kindness, which is unconditional, means you let it be. You don't try and change it. It would be wonderful if I could borrow Harry Potter's magic wand, and then zap, 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 and each one of you will be fully enlightened and have no more physical problems, have wonderful monasteries you can go to where all your committee members uh, are wise and fully enlightened. (laughs) But back into the real world, such things cannot be done. And sometimes it's wonderful they cannot be done. Because that's actually where we learn. And... Is that I'm just going off on a tangent, which is my usual way I give talks. Is sitting in an airport many years ago, I don't know how this happened. I was just passing time chatting to a, a Middle Eastern man. And this Middle Eastern man, we talked about many things. But then he said, he told me, the two worst curses in the Middle East. If you want to say something wrong to somebody, you don't call them like a filthy dog or uh, a crazy drongo or whatever else you say. Instead, the second worst curse in the Middle East was to say, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. (laughs) I don't know why people laugh at that. I thought it was very funny. At least it had some sort of like class to it. A fleas of a thousand camels <laughs> infest your armpits. But that wasn't the worst curse. And the reason why I say this, because the worst curse was actually very profound. And the worst curse was, may you get whatever you want as soon as you want it. And you contemplate that, think about that. My goodness, that's so wise. You know, we we think that, oh, you know, that must be wonderful. I don't know what breakfast you had today. Was it what you liked? Imagine you could just think and you get the best noodles you could ever get in the best uh, hawker stores in Jakarta. Were your breakfast as good as that here? It was. Amazing. But anyway, we can always wish for things, but imagine you got what you wish for straight away, immediately. There'll be some, uh, a lot of suffering there. But anyway, going back to letting be, letting go, that was such an uh, important teaching in Buddhism. And I still remember how Ajahn Shah would teach it. I remember even the spot, because I think I went to visit Wat Ba Pong some years ago, and I told the monk with me, he said, oh, this is where Ajahn Chah told me this. It was just simple ways of teaching, but which were very profound. 
what he did was and we were walking back from arms round and then he knelt by the side of the road and picked up a stick. Then he asked me, he said, is this stick heavy? And then before I could answer, he threw it away. He said, it's only heavy when you keep holding it. As soon as you let it go, it's not heavy anymore. And of course, a simple teaching like that, which everybody could understand, was very, very profound. And it taught me just the importance of letting go of things. I don't need to carry that stick all the time. I don't need to carry the past all the time, or even the future all the time. And after a while you learn it's okay to let it go. How can you let it go? And of course, now this is an old story, but it's still one of the best. And that was the experience when Ajahn Chah was uh, just finishing cleaning up after building his main hall in Wat Bapong. And there was lots and lots and lots of dirt left over. Now, Ajahn Chah could afford, could afford getting workers in to move that earth. He could have afforded uh, getting some equipment in, like earth movers, to move that earth. But did Ajahn Chah do that? No. He used the monks, one of which was me. In those days, monks were environmentally much more uh, green than big earth movers. All we were fed on was one bottle of Coca-Cola or Pepsi in the afternoon and we'd keep on working for for hours. (laughs) But anyway, so this is for your teacher. He asked us to move this pile of earth. And in those days... Again, the food was not very substantial. There was sticky rice and rotten fish curry usually. And so, you know, you weren't that well fed. But nevertheless, you did have, like, faith and confidence. You know, your teacher meant so much to you. He gave you so much great advice. And so you were very happy to help out. And it was very hard work. We'd only eat the one meal of the day. No breakfast or anything like that. And that was all finished by about 9.30. We'd washed our bowls and cleaned up the, the, uh, the dana sala, the, the dining room. And then it was working. So pushing wheelbarrows of earth, shoveling them in, pushing them, unloading them at the right place to put all the earth in the place that John Chow wanted. And it was very hot. This was you know, in the jungle. And so it was very hot, and lots of mosquitoes, very sweaty, very dirty. And eventually, you know, at the end of the day, maybe 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, when you couldn't see anymore, we did have these hurricane lanterns uh, so we could see, but then time to go to bed. And there was no real time to shower. So you just go to your hut, lay down and crash out because you were just exhausted. And that happened for three days in a row. And only after the third day were we finished. There's still not yet enough time to actually to shower and uh, wash your robes. So I must have really stank. 
I didn't keep the mosquitoes away, I think that just attracted them. They knew exactly where I was. They could smell me for a mile away. But nevertheless, we'd done the job, we finished. And I went to sleep and just really just slept so deeply because I was exhausted. And the following day, I never knew this, but at the morning lunch meeting, that Ajahn Chah, he'd gone off to another monastery overnight. And the second monk, Ajahn Liam, he made the announcement that, um, I think we've moved the earth to the wrong place. <laughs> so we all have to move it. He explained it, he had a point to it. But you know, even later on, I noticed all the senior monks, they don't do the work. They just tell us what to do. <laughs> so, actually, Ajahnir was an exception. He did work very, very hard physically, most of his life. And anyway, so, there's another three days of hard work. Still, no wash, not enough rest, and just really getting weaker and weaker. But another three days, it was all finished. It's after six days of really hard work. Some of the hardest physical work I've ever done. It was from 9.30 to about 8 o'clock consistently, no lunch break. So anyway, after moving all that earth, had a nice rest and just found I'm going to have a nice um, shower in the morning and then just wash some robes and do some meditation. You know, that's what I became a monk for, not to move earth, but to meditate. So anyway, many of you know the story, but the reason I tell it is because many of you keep making the same mistakes. So I will tell the story as many times as is necessary until you get the message. <laughs> and so, that night, Ajahn Chah came back. Six days of hard work we completed. And then, at the uh, lunch meeting, he said, I thought I told you to put the earth over there. Why did you put it over the other place? Move it. So another three days of what they call here hard yakka. <laughs> really hard work. And by this time, now I did have a lot of faith in my teachers, but there comes a time <laughs> when you lose your faith. <laughs> and you can tell when somebody loses their faith, you know, they start mumbling. I started mumbling. There's only about one or two Westerners at the monastery at that time. And so I started sort of complaining in English. <laughs> These lazy senior monks, what are they doing? They don't do anywhere, they just give it all to us. Can't they decide? Can't they just make a decision? The earth is okay over there, or get somebody else to move it. I've had enough with moving this earth. And even though the other time monks couldn't understand what I was saying, you can always see the body language. <laughs> and then one of them, to this day, I, I wish I could have remembered which monk this was, because I would have, right now, if I saw him, I'd bow down to him three times and say thank you. Because he told me, he said, pushing the wheelbarrow is easy. Complaining about it is the hard part. And that has meant so much to me. Because it was true. 
know, I understand that he was also pushing wheelbarrows, so you know, he had authority, he knew what it was like. And when he said that you know, the thinking about it, the complaining was a hard part, that made so much difference. So I stopped complaining, and of course the wheelbarrows were much lighter. I even remember that uh, from uh, when I was at university, believe it or not, I was very young, thin, fit. <laughs> I was. I'm not making it up. <laughs> and so one of the things I did for a sport, just because it was done in that place, was to, to do rowing on the river, you know, on the, the, the eights, you know, for racing. It's really hard work. Not for the Oxford or uh, the Cambridge crew. There was only one sport while I was in Cambridge that I represented the university at in the annual Cambridge versus Oxford match. Only one sport I represented Cambridge at. I know some of you know this, but if you know it already, just be quiet, don't spoil the fun. Anyone can guess what that sport was. Okay, if you have heard it before then, what was that sport? Tiddlywinks. Tiddlywinks. <laughs> you could hardly call it a sport. It was like being rebellious, you know, because you didn't need to do any exercise or training. <laughs> and it was just that rebellious jokiness which you had as a student. Yes, we're going to play a sport, but we're going to play a sport which was... <laughs> he didn't break into a sweat at all. So anyway, so I remember just when I was rowing in a race, there was always this coach on the footpath of the, the river, and he shouted at me, because my lane name there was Peter. He said, Peter, you're making an ugly face. <laughs> Can you imagine what it's like? You're just find this really hard. You're making an ugly face. I said, smile. And one thing when I was a student, you're always willing to try anything new. You had this uh, um, adventure, experiment, give anything a try. And so I did. I just smiled instead of grimacing. And you know what I found out, this may seem a small thing to you, but at me, to me, it opened up so many areas of insight and wisdom. So he said, smile. So I did smile. And that awe was much easier to pour. I had more energy, and I could actually work harder to keep the boat going. And that was quite a surprise, just how your attitude can either enhance or decrease your physical strength. I still remember that. Instead of complaining, these wheelbarrows are too hard, when you started smiling, yeah, they are hard, but you can still have a race with <laughs> some of the... Uh, just all these little anecdotes, which I can... Remember. I lived a long life as a monk now, so I've got lots of stories. But I do also remember that when I went to this conference, one of these conferences uh, in Vietnam... Any Vietnamese here? Oh yeah, okay, very good. This was, uh, they had this conference, it's somehow central, it's still north, the north part of Vietnam, but more central, south of uh, Hanoi. 
and they had these lakes with uh, the, the rivers actually ran through the caves. I forget actually the name of the place now. But because we went to this big conference, then afterwards they let, you know, it's a Buddhist conference, all the, the monks and nuns there, we could actually, they did like a tour of the local sites, and one of these was this place where you, this uh, uh, poor Vietnamese man had to just row this boat for us and go under the, the mountains through these caves, and it was very delightful. But of course, it was such a hard work for this guy, you know, to actually to row this boat with all the, the monks in it and nuns. So we decided, okay, no, no, you take a rest, we'll do the rowing, we need the exercise. And so there was also another boat next to us, was the Singapore boat, with Mahayana monks. <laughs> and we were Theravada. <laughs> and so of course, let's have a race. <laughs> so, <laughs> I remember just racing. It was the deputy abbot of Porkaxi Temple. Any Singaporeans here? Oh, they're here last week. Oh, you're there. You know, the deputy abbot of Porkaxi, he was, he was racing against me <laughs> in his boat. And I said, you're Mahayana. You have to let us win. <laughs> so I had lots and lots of fun and exercise at the same time. But I also remember just that if you have to do that, you get tired very quickly. But if you make a fun of it and you have a smile on your face, you get so much more energy. That smiling and laughter is a way of letting go. When you're meditating, sometimes I open my eyes early and have a look at you. How many of you are smiling when you're meditating? How many? <laughs> Another five minutes. <laughs> so sometimes there are these little tricks to learning how to let go. Don't think about the future or the past. Just enjoy this present moment with this wonderful sense of kindness. Open the door of your heart to this moment, no matter what. And then this joy which you can have with whatever's happening. That's a weird thing, how you can see joy and happiness in almost anything. It's weird, but it's true. So, if any of you go visit my, actually, the, what is that? Oh, that's right, yeah. It's getting close. So the last day of the retreat is on the 30th or the 31st? Oh, what a shame. Because you know the 31st of October, what day is that? Halloween, <laughs> ghost night. <laughs> but if ever you go to, um, to our monastery over the road, and if you go to the, the stairs which are inside the dining areas, and if you look underneath the stairs, there's a cupboard, and if you have a look inside the cupboard, what do good monks keep in the cupboard? Skeletons, yes. We've got not one skeleton in the cupboard, we've got three in there. And because you know, they were offered to us 
for our contemplation. But I did mention that uh, in my hut, or actually in my little office, uh, I have two skeletons, not two skeletons, I've got two skulls in there. I don't know if any of you have seen those two skulls. You've seen one of them for sure, because one of them is this one. <laughs> and the other one is a very old one, about 300 years old. It's a very old skull which somebody gave to me. And of course you, you, you use that for contemplation. And after a while, that the weird thing happens, that you look at this skull, and it's, and it's a real skull, bones, and and a couple of teeth still there. And then it starts to look beautiful. It's a weird part of meditation when you do start to let things be. Then it sends to the, the energy builds up. It brightens up by itself. And a skull becomes beautiful. They're really white, even though it's, it's quite dirty, a real skull. It doesn't look really white, old bones. But when it starts, you start to focus on it, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter and becomes incredibly beautiful. It's a weird thing. But this is just the way a still mind works. Whatever it looks at becomes more and more delightful and beautiful. I didn't really mean to go into this part of meditation at this stage of the talk. But it is true that hopefully during this retreat, many of you, if you keep quiet and you don't sort of go talking to each other that much and you spend a lot of time in your own solitude and you start to get some peaceful meditations, you start to see that everything looks so incredibly gorgeous and beautiful. You see a little stone on the path and that stone on the path it's just so many contours in it. It's like a little little planet Earth. And when you start to see ordinary things, this is this gong which we got from India many years ago. It was incredibly beautiful. Just a different, it's not just ordinary brass. You see there's just different lines in the brass. And just the way the etching, it just um, balances with everything else. And sometimes you can just look at this and think it's just a gong. But when you start to become very aware and very peaceful, it's just amazing what you can see. You start to see, I've had this for many, many years, you start to see things you've never seen before. They've always been there, but now you can see their beauty. This is a wonderful thing when you start letting things be. It's not boring at all. If you do it properly, you let things be, and it's almost as if you're giving that object, or whatever it is, the opportunity to reveal its beauty to you. And after a while, you see this, and it becomes more and more beautiful. It's always been there, but now you're still enough, you let it be enough, you're not judging it, and it just starts to glisten for you. It starts to glow. That's a wonderful thing about the way we use our meditation, when we do let things be, they become more and more and more and more beautiful. You're trying to fix things up. That's the opposite of letting things be.
and it's so seductive. You know, your back is itchy, so I scratch it. My nose is itchy, so I scratch it. But you know what happens if I scratch my nose? In one minute time, it'll get itchy again. You have to scratch it again. You have to, again. <laughs> but the weird thing is, if you just leave it alone, don't even scratch it, and after a while, the itch disappears. And not just the itch disappears, it gets incredibly comfortable. Weird thing about your posture in meditation, is it really important that you sit in full lotus, cross-legged on the floor, and get rid of those softy cushions? Are you a real meditator? Do you really want to become enlightened? Throw those cushions away. Get off those chairs. Sit for... <laughs> of course, don't do that. That is... Many people like to, th- to think they can do things like that. To really be the tough guy, the tough girl, and just to meditate no matter what. There's so many stories, and every now and again I read one out. I haven't got the texts here today. But... I remember once that my first Waisak celebration I went to when I was so inspired hearing how the Buddha made a determination. He's going to sit down and meditate and he's not going to get up from that seat even if his blood dries up and his bones turn to dust. He's not going to get up from that seat until he gets full, perfect enlightenment. Have any of you tried that? (laughs) Is that why you're not enlightened? (laughs) So, of course, I was only 18. 18 is when you have lots and lots of arrogance. (laughs) Fortunately, I've lost a lot of that now, so I won't do stupid things like this ever again. I would usually meditate 20 minutes with lots of cushions. <laughs> and when I decided this was waste that day. You know, I had lots of things to do in my life. I wanted to get enlightenment out of the way <laughs> so I could, <laughs> I could focus on other things. Please don't do that here. As I often say, if any of you get enlightened today, what are you going to do for the rest of the week? <laughs> it's going to be a problem for you. <laughs> no, but anyway, it's the wanting is a problem. So anyway, 20 minutes my max. So I went back to my room after this very inspiring uh, talk about Waysack. I think it was done by, any of you remember him, Dr. Sadatissa? He was the head of the London Buddhist Bihara at the time. And anyway... It was, he inspired me. He said, well, you know, if the Buddha can do it, why not me? I'm as good as anybody else. <laughs> so that's what I did. I went to my room and I sat down. I made the resolution. <laughs> Even though my bones might turn to dust and my blood will dry up, I'm not going to move. No matter what until I get full enlightenment. I did last 40 minutes. <laughs> now that was a lot in those days. I might double my record. 
And I, I opened my eyes. I was in total agony <laughs> all over. <laughs> and worse, my blood hadn't dried up and my bones were still... <laughs> but I learned something from that. I learned that's not the way to get peace, enlightenment or anything. It's just a way to get very sore limbs, sore bottoms or everything. Instead you realize, and other times, I just remembering some of the wonderful meditations I've done in my life so far. One of the best ones was some of these like all-night sits, which we had to do. Most of them, I hated them. I remember this one night, you know, just everything was um, kind of together. All the causes were there, I wasn't really sleepy. So I did sleep really, really, sorry, I didn't sleep. I did sit very still for hours. And it was so easy. It wasn't my effort. I never did this. It's just like you learn how to let go, let be. And the mind does it by itself. And the weird thing is, and I think many of you should have experienced this as well, if you sit for, say, an hour, you get a sore this or a sore that. But when you sit for five or six hours, and it's deep meditation, you get out of the meditation afterwards, you don't have an ache or a pain in the body at all. And sometimes, you know, you feel like you know, you could compete with, I don't know who the speedsters are these days. I think the last time I looked, Usain Bolt? Is he retired now? Okay, well, that shows you last time I had a look at these things. But anyway, in those days I thought, if I was in a race with the 100 metre world champion Usain Bolt, I'd give him a run for his money. As a, you know, about 65 year old at the time or something. <laughs> Because you felt just this power in your body, as if the body could get itself healed, you know, with deep meditation. And I'm sure it does. But anyway, with the postures you have, people have the idea, if you're too soft on yourself, then all you'll ever do is fall asleep, you won't get anywhere in this meditation. It's not the way that this meditation works. How this meditation works is not just having a stiff body or having a, a loose body, it's having a relaxed body, which is something totally different. It's one of the reasons why that one of the phrases which I've been employing for many years now, a way to meditate, to relax to the max. And people sometimes think this is just another joke. It's very profound. Can you really relax? Really relax to the max? So often when I do meditation, the first part of letting be, letting go of trying to uh, alter things, is just watch my body. Just do a scan of it. And if I come across any area which is tight, sore, aching, bruised, I just pause there. Don't do anything except kindness. That kindness I found to be so powerful. Because I remember just, okay, this is you know, 
from my youth, my own mother, every time I injured myself, you know, usually the things I remember was playing soccer in the streets because a poor kid from a poor neighborhood. Every time that I scraped the skin off my knees, my mother would kneel down and kiss it better. And that was it. No antiseptic, just kiss, like licking it, and it healed. But the major thing was the pain went away straight away. And that was something which I took for granted. I never understood how pain works. But the power of kindness, I mean, it's really huge. And that's one of the reasons, you know, mother died a long time ago. But now, if ever, you know, say I've got a sore knee, I can even just stroke it with as much kindness as I can possibly find. If you've got a headache, take your hand and stroke your head and really feel it. Give it as much kindness as, as possible. If you feel really alone, you know, solitude is a bit much for you and you miss people, you can get a hug. From whom? You can't give hugs to people these days. Part of our modern world, if you give someone a hug, you can get accused of sexual abuse, or even worse, you might catch some diseases. So I always learned a long time ago, because being a monk, I liked hugs. So how can I get hugs these days? Yes, that's right, give yourself a hug. <laughs> and I can't sue myself. <laughs> and I can't catch a disease I, I haven't already got. So I'm safe every which way. So. And again, that is not a joke. If you feel that you feel a bit down, a bit rejected, a bit lonely on a retreat, give yourself a hug, mindfully. But you have to give it everything you've got. Don't just put your hands around and say, OK, that's enough, it's not working. Put some effort into it. <laughs> if you're going to give, your head, give yourself a hug, squash yourself. But this is just what happens is you can generate this beautiful happiness and joy like with a skull or just you know, with your own body and get this joy and happiness in. So when I'm just doing a scan through my body, is that getting a bit of echo in there? Oh, it's okay. That as you are, have you got the echo there? Okay. Technical support. <laughs> no. Okay. Put it in here. Is that any better? No. Okay. Okay, lower the mic, yeah. There we go. No. Hello. Is that any better? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Good. 
<laughs> so, let it go, Prim. <laughs> no, it's going in there now. Okay, I'll just carry on anyway. But when you um, leave things alone, you just focus on them. Things in the body, just like an ache or a pain in the knee, disappear. It, it, sometimes it was weird to me, how does this actually work? Because I thought if I want to get, the, say, the knee to be pain-free, I've got to do something. But that's better. Is that okay? Okay, lower it, okay. Is that better? Okay, yeah, okay, thank you, Prem. So, just a little bit, never mind. Is that irritating? Okay, okay, it's irritating me more, and I'm supposed to be <laughs> teaching about letting things be. <laughs> be kind, there we go. Nice microphone. <laughs> no, but honestly, just that kindness does have some power. And I've used that many, many times. Uh, I think somebody remember this story because she was there at the time. She wasn't the main culprit, but it was our Buddhist Society of West Australia Youth Group many years ago. And just after having a meeting together, they decided to go down to the beach. It was a summer's day. And so they had uh, a car, trying to fit everybody in. But the problem was, the boot of the car was locked. And they could not open that boot. And they'd been trying for at least about half an hour, 45 minutes, trying to open the boot of a locked car. And then when I walked past, they said, Oh, Ajahn Brahm, you've got psychic powers. You could open this for us. We need to go to the beach. And so not missing an opportunity, I said, I will open that car for you on one condition. That you, that was uh, Ronnie, Veronica. Veronica, as long as you promise to become a bhikkhuni and ordain, then I'll open the boot of the car for you. And she was laughing. She said, OK, think it was impossible. <laughs> They'd been trying for half an hour to open that boot. So all you did was just stroke the lock. There you are, lock. And do it very kindly, with as much loving kindness as possible. And the boot opened up. <laughs> and poor old Veronica. You were there at the time, weren't you? Yeah. There's the witness over there. It opened up straight away. <laughs> and then poor old Veronica, ah, I've got to become a big coonie. I never meant that. But she had very, one very good friend there who was a lawyer. <laughs> and the lawyer said, yes, yeah, she promised to ordain as a bhikkhuni, but she never said when. <laughs> so she got, she got her out of trouble. But the most important part of that was just how that loving kindness, how that could have an effect on a lock which no one could open. I've done that many, many times. And it seems that the, it's not a psychic power. It's just using kindness you know, to almost like literally open things up. And sometimes 
that you wonder just when you're meditating and you have got an ache or a pain in the body, just a little bit of kindness does wonderful things to relax everything so much, your body feels free and does actually get very, very, very relaxed. The thing which I notice when the body gets very relaxed, you also get some happiness and joy comes up with the body. It's something which you, know, you just notice when you were meditating. When I did a relaxation meditation, and afterwards my body felt so at ease. It felt joyful. You know, if you, those of you who've done a lot of meditation, you've heard about the breath meditation. When you're breathing in and breathing out, you develop these qualities called piti sukha along with the breathing. That's a joy and happiness. Where do they come from? It's the same joy and happiness which you get when you really relax to the max, physically. The body feels wonderful. It feels joyful, it feels happy. It feels at ease. And when you do that, you find you can relax even more deeply. When you let things be, the relaxation gets deeper by itself and the joy gets deeper. It's as if that when you do nothing, that's when the meditation starts to really become strong. It becomes strong all by itself. You're not doing anything. You're allowing it to get beautiful and joyful and um, still. So I remember doing that very often, that when I do a relaxation of the body, I wait, I know that my body is relaxed when I start to feel that piti sukha in the body, the joy, the peace, the relaxation. And that's also when you let go, the joy and the happiness which comes up. Weird thing, but even at the times when you've been really sort of sick, I told this in the previous retreat, but it's fresh in my mind because of that. A simple thing, just like a toothache. The first year over in Thailand, I had a terrible toothache. You went to the medicine box, there's no medicine in there. It was empty. The box was there with a big red cross on it, but nothing inside of it. <laughs> and that's really depressing. But anyway, Middle of the night, the toothache getting worse and worse. And I tried to meditate on the breath. You couldn't do that. Be careful. Because that's not what meditation is, forcing your mind onto the breath. The pain was too big. I tried chanting. I had to stop that because I was waking everybody up. I was shouting the chant. <laughs> I was desperate. I tried walking meditation. I've seen a few people doing walking meditation. You're doing it very, very well. But I couldn't do walking meditation, I was doing running meditation. <laughs> you get kind of desperate. So in the end, you got to sometimes in meditation, you get to these points. As Ajahn Chah put it, you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still. What the heck do you do? All of your means of coping with a problem have been exhausted. And that's how it felt. I couldn't go to sleep, I couldn't stay awake, I couldn't do anything, didn't know what to do. 
all by yourself in a forest a long way away from where you grew up. But you did hear these amazing words, like, you know, let go, let things be. And just that one word, let go, that was one of the first times I did that. We really did let go. Just not just over many minutes, but just in a second, just let go. Should be very simple. Once you know where that letting go button is, it is simple. And the weird thing which happened, it was not just the toothache just totally disappeared, but it was replaced with bliss. Just, oh, and how on earth can that happen? Just in, a, in less than a second, a very difficult pain was replaced by feelings of just ecstasy. No drugs or anything. It's just what the, the, the mind did. And that was sort of something which I've noticed a lot you know, in life, how you can be really sick, in great pain. Once you know where that letting go button is, it's amazing what you can do. It's not just uh, those uh, feelings disappear, but they're replaced by these beautiful, joyful feelings. They are, what well, I will mention this later when we talk about the breath meditation in more detail, they are chitta-sankara, they come from the mind, these blisses. If you can keep still long enough, then the mangoes start to fall. You're sitting still under the mango tree. And so at first it may make no sense to you, but it happens. That's why this letting go business, once you've done it a few times, you'll never be afraid of lots of pain. You'll never be afraid of death, because you know you just leave it alone. It's not you dying. Your body dies, your mind stops. All these other things happen, but not you. You can let go. It gets nice and nice and peaceful. You don't need to worry about anything because all you need to do is not hold anything. Can you do that? Sometimes it's difficult to let things go, especially if you've got lots and lots and lots and lots of responsibilities. Like, um, Ayaseri, you have to look after Patachara, Venerable Chanda has to look after Anukampa because What are you looking after, Venerable Subhijana? <laughs> wow! Shh, keep that quiet. <laughs> Otherwise, like, someone will give you something. Sorry? They will, yeah. No. Just say no. But I look after many things. All my responsibilities. I've already, people reminded me the other day, I'm a spiritual director of the Cambodian Buddhist Society here in Western Australia. How I got involved in that, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and spiritual, I, uh, Buddhist Society of Western Australia, that's my main job. And I'm not the spiritual director of that. I'm the spiritual dictator. <laughs> and all these other little jobs. But one thing which you always remember, and this is one of those similes I found very helpful, and how to let things go. 
how to throw sticks away. And that's the idea of being the visitor. Do you own Jana Grove, any of you? I don't either. I'm in a nice room in the teacher's cottage. I don't own it. I'm visiting there for eight days. Because I'm only a visitor, I don't have to worry too much about it. I don't have to think what needs to be fixed up, what needs to be added, what needs to be cleaned. It's good enough for me. It's like being in a hotel room. If you go in a hotel room, do you have to um, clean the carpet and you know, clean all the toilets when you're in a hotel room? That's not your job, is it? You're just a visitor. When you're a visitor, you don't have responsibilities. So I always love being a visitor. That's why sometimes you might go overseas to somebody else's temples. And then they can look after you. You just go in there and just enjoy. So because of that, some years ago, that because I wasn't travelling very much, because, you know, COVID, you can't go travelling anyway. So how can I still be a visitor in Bodhinyana Monastery where I live? So I would pretend. Nothing wrong with that. I pretend to be a visitor every Monday morning. Came back from the Dhammaloka Center, working my butt off there. It's not just teaching meditation, it's all the problems you have to face. It's nobody's fault, but when you have a committee or a trust or somebody else who runs something, they're always going to have different ideas. One thing I've noticed when a person has an idea, they're always right. They may have different ideas, but everyone is right. <laughs> so just negotiate that and find some way through all these different ideas. And afterwards, you get very tired. So once you get very, very tired, I always remember, you know in Thailand, I think it's still the rule. Over in Thailand, that's okay, we're almost finished. Oh, sit down, relax. <laughs> You're not responsible anymore, so you can just be a visitor. <laughs> so anyway, on Monday morning, I'd always pretend to be the visitor, not the abbot, not the one in charge. Because when I pretend to be a visitor, there's always things go wrong. People say, oh, we need to ask a question about meditation. Oh, I don't know. I'm only a visitor today. We need to sort of have the email of the, of the committee. Well, I don't know. I'm just visiting today. One of the monks has gone crazy. Yeah, well, I'm only a visitor today, not my business. And I did that every morning for a long time. And then I could see Bodhinyana Monastery in a totally different way. Everybody would go and visit there. They'd say, lucky over there. You go visit, you know, Bodhiyana Monastery. You say, how beautiful it looks. I could not see that beauty when I was the abbot, when I was a boss. But once I just pretended to be a visitor, the monastery looked gorgeous. You see, when you let go and think you have to control things, you can see all the beauty in the place. When you let go of trying to uh, 
get into deep meditation, trying to still your mind. When you let go of trying to do that, you can see all the beauty in your mind right now. And then it becomes still, all by itself. That's what letting go is. And so when you're meditating, over the next uh, eight days, don't ever think you own your body or you own your mind. You're just visiting for eight days. Hi mind, we're just going to hang out together, but don't worry, after eight days you can go back on your computer and mess around. <laughs> but right now, you've got no responsibilities or duties at all. Then you can enjoy your body and mind. And because you're enjoying it, it doesn't need anything. It becomes very peaceful and still all by itself. Effortless, as deep meditation always has to be. Otherwise, you get exhausted. So, the letting go, I was going to teach the four ways of letting go. I haven't even started on the first way of letting go yet. But I let go of that. <laughs> and so, please let me be. <laughs> okay, that's enough now. It's 8.57. So, thank you all for listening. Sadhu. Now, we don't ask much effort from you, but when we do the sadhus, please, full 110% effort. Are you ready? Yes. Sadhu. Sadhu. And a big one. Sadhu. <laughs> okay, it gives a bit more energy for your meditation. So it's now nine o'clock almost, and so we have a nice free morning. So you can either. What I would actually do is ask your mind, mind, what do you want to do now? Body, what do you want to do? As long as it's within all the precepts, <laughs> then allow the mind to take a rest. Have a cup of tea, have a walk around, have a rest if you need a rest. And uh, just relax the body. Become a friend to your body and a friend to your mind. And then you'll be able to work with the body and with the mind. It doesn't create so many problems for you then. You're not competing against each other. You're not trying to train your mind or train your body. You're being kind to it. And then you get much deeper meditation, longer meditation, that way. So ask your mind, mind, what do you want to do now? Body, what do you want to do? And trust what your body and mind says. Okay. Okay, have a nice lunch, and later on.